Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Well, we survived another week. We're still on the air. And that's uh, the name of the game, after all. You have to live to fight another day. And uh, we will not go gently into that good night, my friends. Uh, This show exists in part to shine a light backstage in the global theater. And tonight we're going to attempt to shine a light uh, and expose the shadowy figures behind the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, June 6th marked the 47th anniversary of his murder inside the kitchen at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And the supposed gunman, Sirhan Sirhan, still languishes in prison and maintains his innocence. Uh, Historian and author John Kerner is standing by to discuss in mere moments. First, let me remind you to get on up to the uh, website richardserrett.com where Albert Vinzel and I have posted a collection of stories in the slide carousel. If you're following reports about a possible ISIS cell located in Mexico and just across the border with the United States, you'll likely be alarmed and perhaps dismayed by this story. Judicial Watch is reporting that rather than working to protect Americans, the FBI's reaction to a report of an ISIS cell in Mexico, eight miles outside of the United States, was to hold a spin meeting with the U.S. consulate in Ciudad Juarez uh, without the Department of Homeland Security. They're reportedly trying to figure out how to create a successful press strategy to deny the report about the cell and to identify who is leaking the information. Uh, And if you thought all talk uh, from a few years ago about a catastrophic bird flu pandemic killing millions had just sort of gone away and was uh, a false alarm, think again. You may want to check out this story where Bill Gates, the founder and kajillionaire of Microsoft, uh, fears global pandemic. And if you thought all talk from a few years ago about a catastrophic bird flu pandemic which could kill millions, has just sort of gone away and perhaps was a false alarm. Think again. Uh, You may want to check out this story. Uh, Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft and, of course, uh, one of the world's richest men, fears a global pandemic could wipe out 33 million people. Those are just two of the stories you'll find in the slide carousel atop of richardserrett.com. So, uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. With Senator Kennedy, at the time of his death, were his wife, Ethel, his sisters, Mrs. Stephen Smith, Mrs. Patricia Lawford, brother-in-law, Mr. Stephen Smith, his sister-in-law, Mrs. John F. Kennedy. He was uh, 42 years old. Shortly after midnight, June 5th, 1968, in Los Angeles, uh, during the campaign season for the U.S. presidential election, Robert F. Kennedy was slain. Uh, just after winning the California and South Dakota primary elections for the Democratic nomination. He was uh, shot as he walked through the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel and died in the Good Samaritan Hospital 26 hours later. Uh, 
John Kerner is a professor of American history at Erie Community College in Williamsville, New York. He's the author of several books, uh, including Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. Hey, John, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. How are you doing tonight? Terrific. Thank you. Uh, well, hard to believe. Uh, let's see, 1968, we're talking 47 years ago, nearly half a century, and uh, the last... Words uttered by uh, Senator Kennedy, uh, you know, uh, now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. Uh, he's, of course, escorted into the uh, into the uh, the pantry at uh, the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And uh, that was all she wrote. Um, when you look back on the uh, the events of that assassination um, and specifically what transpired in the pantry, the kitchen, what jumps out at you immediately as sort of a red flag, something that just doesn't add up? Well, the official version of events is that there was only one gunman, but with just a little bit of logic and evidence, we can easily disprove that. Sirhan Sirhan never got close enough for a uh, point-blank shot in the back of the head, and RFK's autopsy had that easily revealed that he got shot right in the back of his skull, point-blank against the skull. There were powder burns behind his ear, were there not? Absolutely, and on his coat, too, yeah. Easily proven that he was being shot close up, close range for the kill shot. And hotel maitre d', Carl Eucher, he made it very clear to investigators that he was pulling the senator by the wrist through the hotel kitchen pantry to get him to a press conference, which was outside of the kitchen pantry where reporters were gathered to wait for the senator. So he was dragging RFK through by the wrist. So he was right next to RFK as the shots were being fired. And Heltel Maitre D. Carl Eucher said that the assassin never got that close to him, perhaps within three or four feet, maybe even longer than that. But no way could he get that close for that kind of a kill shot. And who was, was it Rosie Greer that pinned Sirhan to the steam table? Uh, who was on the Kennedy uh, security detail? I thought it was Rosie Greer, but I may be wrong about that. Right, Rosie Greer was there. We can also point out Nina Rhodes Hughes, too. Nina Rhodes Hughes was a campaign worker for RFK. And she was in the room, too, next to the senator. And she said that she saw another man shooting at RFK that was not Sirhan Sirhan. And she came forward with this information in April of 2012. And she said that this other gunman was the one who shot Kennedy in the back of the head, not Sirhan, who delivered the kill shot. Now, the um, the weapon in question, the, the weapon that Sirhan was, in fact, firing, I mean, it was, in his, it was in his hand, there's no question about that. That was a twenty two caliber Ivor Johnson. Mm-hmm. It was a cadet revolver. Right. But it, that's an interesting weapon because it's not like a six-shooter. Is it a five or a seven or something? Eight shots. Eight yeah. shots. Right. That's interesting. But, and he emptied the chamber, right? Mm-hmm. But but how many shots, I mean, how many bullets were accounted for? Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get thirteen out of eight. It doesn't add up. <laughs> yeah, so you can point to that. You can point to the fact there's the headshot, and you can point to the, the testimony from Nina Rhodes Hughes, and... You just can add these things up, and there's just no way that it was the way the official version has us believe. And and um, what about the ballistics? Uh, the um, the the shot that wounded um, Bobby's aide. Uh, in fact, that's that's all Kennedy was concerned about. He's lying on the floor, right. mortally wounded, and the first thing out of his mouth is, you know, how is and and uh, uh, his his aide that was injured, um, uh, whose name escapes me uh, right at the moment, but. Uh, what do the ballistically do the do the bullets match a twenty two caliber Ivor Woods Johnson? No, not all of them don't. 
it's clear from the FBI's analysis and from the LAPD that there was at least one more gun that was being shot that night. And again, if you look at Nina Rhodes Hughes, who says that she hears 13 shots, and she counted them in her head, she said she recognized the rhythm in their head. There had to have been another gunman there. And even Sirhan himself has admitted, this was back in February of 2011, that he was brainwashed by the agency to kill Robert Kennedy. So he's alive today, he's still in California jail, and he came forward just a few years ago and came out with that information that he was brainwashed with the MK Ultra program. Right. I, I've um, I've met uh, Sir Han's lawyer, um, um, William Francis Pepper, Pepper yeah. and uh, in New York, and we talked at length in a hotel room about uh, about uh, Sir Han, his client, and and he uh, also uh, believes fervently that that he was mind controlled, mm-hmm. and um, which brings us to the uh, the infamous lady in the polka dot dress, uh, and um, uh, Sir Han talks about meeting this woman, and the other thing that he mem- remembers, is it's, it's quite sketchy, mm-hmm. uh, but he remembers this giant urn of coffee. He wanted coffee. Walk us through um, Sirhan's, um, what happened to Sirhan leading up to uh, the actual uh, assassination and the shooting, What when he was in the hotel. Yeah, a lot of this stuff is very controversial, because the LAPD... When they arrested him, they tried to get things out of him, information from him. They thought that he was acting like a, like a robot or some kind of trained assassin. He, he couldn't say what his name was. He looked like he was hypnotized. He was having some drinks that night with this polka dot dress girl, and his behavior was completely bizarre. And you look at his entries in his journal. He was writing things like, RFK must die. It seemed like he'd been going through things like uh, sensory deprivation control, torture techniques, the things that would be used to make this man act the way he was acting that night. And the police, they picked up on this right away in his, and when he was being interrogated and when they arrested him that night. His behavior was completely bizarre, like a, a trained assassin would behave. Was he also not seen on a um, uh, taking target practice at some point before... Uh, the assassination? Right. Yeah, it, it seems like, just like with um, <laughs> the JFK assassination, there was a uh, Lee Harvey Oswald lookalike that was taking target practice on the guy next to him. So they want to make sure that the Patsy gets lined up before the shooting takes place in really both situations. And uh, he assumed kind of a, um, um, did he not assume kind of a, a combat stance when he was start, when he began firing the pistol in the in the pantry? Right, and I mean, the kitchen pantry itself, it just a chaotic scene. It's just packed with people, and, and and like you said, with RFK, he immediately recognizes the fact that his friends are there, his campaign workers are there, and they're being targeted too. So you have. The scene itself is, it just lends itself to the truth being kind of uh, smoothed over because there's so much chaos going on that you can kind of cover up what really happened with all the chaotic activity in the kitchen pantry. Was, um, what was, uh, Sirhan Sirhan's opinion of the Kennedys? He was a Palestinian, um, and ostensibly, you know, the, um, the motive was given that, that, uh, you know, he didn't like the Kennedy's position on on Israel uh, vis-a-vis Palestine or the Palestinian situation. 
but but that doesn't necessarily square with his 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 um, his opinions about the Kennedys before the assassination, does it? I mean, he wasn't he wasn't vocally uh, opposed to the Kennedys prior to the assassination, was he? He wasn't out protesting, distributing no. flyers like Oswald. No, no. In fact, uh, an interview I, I watched with him is he bizarrely says that he wanted RFK to win the presidency. So none of it really adds up, and we just bring in another guy into this equation, a guy named David Morales, who was also most likely there in the kitchen pantry. He probably was the other gunman. There was a guy named uh, Shane O'Sullivan from the BBC, a very good reporter for the work for Newsnight. And back in 2006, he did an investigation trying to figure out who else was in that kitchen pantry that night and in the Ambassador Hotel ballroom. And he found out through his research that three agents from the, from the CIA were in the ballroom that night, one of whom was uh, David Morales. And Morales was one of these members of the Phoenix program in Vietnam and in Laos that were you know, running drugs from Southeast Asia to the United States. And he most likely was one of these other men who was involved with, with the assassination, David Morales. All right, we will get into that uh, in, a, in a few moments. We're coming up on a break here. John Kerner is uh, with us, and he is the author of Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. We are commemorating the 47th anniversary of the assassination of uh, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, and uh, perhaps we could add Bobby Kennedy to that list uh, and tie that into the secret drug trade in Laos. We'll find out when my interview with John Kerner continues right after this, The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with John Kerner. The book is Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, of course, uh, was uh, no friend of J. Edgar Hoover and vice versa. <laughs> they, there was no question they, uh, the, you know, the animosity there was palpable. Um, how much uh, did, did Hoover uh, know and have to do with this assassination, do you think? Well, I think he at least knew about it and was monitoring it. He was deeply involved in monitoring the Malcolm X assassination and also I think the RFK assassination as well. I think he plays more of, of an oversight role. He knows what's going on and is not going to stop any of this stuff. But I, I personally think most of the blame really lies in the feet of the agency. That's where most of the motive comes from and where the shooters, I think, really are, by the, the assassin's own admission, really are, are coming from. And Morales himself is mentioning this report that Shane O'Sullivan did on Newsnight. The report included a quote from Morales, and he says, I was in Dallas when we got that son of a bitch, and I was in Los Angeles when we got that little bastard. So Morales himself, just arrogant, just ruthless assassin involved with the RFK assassination. Uh, I, we'll, we'll talk about the, uh, the drug trade in uh, Southeast Asia and how that may tie in, but how much of it, uh, if it was the agency again involved in Bobby Kennedy's assassination, I had to do with the possibility that once elected president, he would uh, revisit the Warren report and the uh, and the assassination of his brother. That's a huge part of it. Um, the interesting thing about this is that uh, the, the the very day that JFK is assassinated, Bobby Kennedy goes to Director uh, McCone and he tells him basically, that I, "I know you, you did this, and so we're going to find out how." He accuses him of 
of figuring out, you know, of planning the assassination. So RFK spends the next several years doing his own research, and he talks to men like uh, Penn Jones Jr. and Walter Sheridan, two men that had been doing some their own research on JFK's assassination. He visited uh, Mexico City, where Oswald had visited, and he, he figures out that it, at some point, he believes that at some point the agency planned and executed his brother's assassination. So if he became president, like you were saying, he was going to reopen the investigation and, and prove who did this. Now, the, uh, the LAPD, uh, one thing that's interesting, because this was in, in 1968, uh, this was actually the, investigated by the LAPD. I mean, back then, that's the way it, it went. Now, if this happened today, of course, the feds would have been involved from the get-go. But let's talk a little bit about the LAPD investigation. And um, there was a chief of de- de- detectives, uh, Robert Houghton, and uh, he asked the, uh, the chief of homicide, Detective Hugh Brown, to take charge of the investigation. And uh, I think it was codenamed Special Unit Senator or something like that. Right. Um, and he actually, Houghton that is, was sort of thinking along those same lines, that, that there may have been a link between Bobby Kennedy's death and those of JFK and Martin Luther King. What happened to that investigation? I mean, that was pretty, that's pretty, um, um, how should I say, uh, I don't know, unexpected to think that, that a, a, an LAPD uh, chief of def- detectives would sort of, would think that you know he, he he might be accused of being conspiratorial today if he were to think that yeah you would think so right unfortunately um, a lot of the investigators like him that were in the LAPD and had wanted to do the right thing and look into this they found out that a lot of the evidence um, the testimony that, that Sirhan gave on custody had been destroyed and they couldn't get at a lot of the information they wanted to find because it just didn't exist it was shredded or, or or locked up in, in for national security purposes, and they couldn't get at what they wanted to find. So that was, it was just a huge roadblock to trying to figure out the truth. Did any of the um, the LAPD uh, speak later, whether it was Houghton or uh, Hugh Brown, who was the uh, chief of homicide, did they ever speak out publicly about uh, obstacles to the investigation being thrown up by the CIA? The only incident that I know where we got closer to the truth is the information that came out with with Carl Eucher, uh, Hotel Maitre D. He's the one that was consistently telling the LAPD that Sirhan never got close enough to, to do the kill shot. And that information really comes directly from Los Angeles Police Department. So that's a key part that does come really from them. And uh, put that in the forensics part of the, of the investigation, that can get us closer to the truth. So that's one point that I can make with Carl Eucher and his testimony. He did tell them that pretty clearly, pretty early on, too, that he was right there and the kill shot could, could not have come from Sirhan. Um, what of this character, Thane Eugene Cesar, who um, was, um, I believe, uh, a security guard, but he also was, he, he, he had a weapon that night, did he not? Tell me about yes. Thane Eugene Cesar. Yeah, he's been the focus of a lot of attention in terms of he might have been the one who delivered the shot to Kennedy's uh, skull because he was pretty close to being in position to where that was. But other people that were in the room, like Nina Rhodes-Hughes, she has said that it was not him. It, it, 
it, the description that she gives was of someone else that fits more of a description of a man from the agency, dressed more more like a man from the agency. So either him or, say, Morales or one of the other agents, it's got to be someone because the position of Sirhan doesn't correspond to where he could have delivered the kill shot. He's insisted, though, that it wasn't him, that he had no motive to do it, and he pulled his gun but never fired it. And um, the all of the, gu- the the bullets fired by uh, Sirhan's uh, eight shot twenty two caliber Iver uh, Johnson mm-hmm. um, have or Iver Woods rather um, have they all been accounted for? No, they haven't. And another thing to think about too is that when the LAPD goes in there and the FBI goes in there, they take a lot of photographs and they find uh, bullet holes in the kitchen pantry walls and no one knows what happened to those bullets either. So a lot of the crime scene, in terms of where bullets went, what was taken out, is really unknown to this very day. We don't really know where it went. A lot of it was destroyed. The the destruction of evidence in a case like this, I mean, how does that happen? I mean, it had, it had to be deliberate. You would think so, yeah. I mean, it, it, it seems like there might have been a, a recognition from the very beginning, maybe based on the assassin's behavior, that they did not want another Dallas. They didn't want another situation where there would be conspiracy theories and people would be questioning their, you know, their motives and, and, and leap to conclusions. So much easier than to go to a leap to a conspiracy than to just leap to the conclusion that just one person, nice, easy conclusion, and we just wrap things up with that. And a related point, too, I wanted to make, uh, you know, Sir Han goes on trial in 1969 and is given the death sentence. Fortunately, it got commuted, and he was never executed. And we need to think about that if he was executed in 1969, the truth never comes out about this assassination. It takes years of hypnotherapy, psychiatric um, support through his psychologist, work with his, his lawyers, to finally, as I mentioned, in 2011, we get the truth coming out. So if he gets the death penalty in 1969, we never know the truth. So we need to wonder sometimes, why does the U.S. government always push the death penalty? You think about Timothy McVeigh, you think about the Boston Marathon bomber, both given the death penalty, and if they're in both cases killed, the truth can never, years later, come out. It's true. That, it, it, that is so often the case. And in these high-profile assassinations, uh, whether it's, you know, John Lennon in 1980, Chapman, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, can, uh, pleads guilty suddenly, uh, was ready to mount a, his lawyers were ready to mount a, a criminal insanity case, then he does a complete turnabout, no trial, therefore, uh, of course, with Oswald, the, um, he's uh, conveniently taken out by Jack Ruby. Right. Uh, and then with Sirhan Sirhan, or uh, sorry, let's go back to MLK. Yeah. Uh, again, James Earl Ray, horrible lawyer, gets railroaded, is convinced uh, that he has to cop a plea because he's going to face the death penalty. So right. again, no trial. Uh, and then with Sirhan Sirhan, another guilty plea. You know, with the Boston Marathon bomber, too, there is so much interesting speculation about that being a black flag event that if this man is executed, uh, you know, this year or next, and we're not allowed to know what happened there, years later, we'll never know anything, because he's silenced immediately. Same thing with Timothy McVeigh. 
And the the feds always push this. They push to silence these people, and we, we never get to know the truth. And and Sir Hans Hand is a good, interesting case study because he was allowed to, to to live here. So many years later, he comes out with the truth, and we know what happened. Then because of that, uh, let's talk about his plea a little bit because essentially he said, "Well, I I guess I did it because I don't I don't have any recollection. If you say I did it, I guess I did it. What I mean, talk to me about his legal team. That they really dropped the ball." Yeah, they did. Uh, it's so many assassins, that's the case. Uh, Leon Shogosh, too, the assassin of President McKinley. His his team also was just a complete joke. They just railroaded him, too. Uh, they almost are embarrassed to represent these men because they are you know, enemy number one at that point in time. They've killed American heroes. So they, they are almost ashamed to do their job, so they don't do it. And it takes a man like William Pepper to have the courage to step forward and say, you know what, this is completely wrong. The man was railroaded by his, his lawyer team, and he deserves a fair shake and a fair trial. Why didn't they, and I, let's um, assume that it was, uh, for the purposes of this discussion, it was the agency somehow involved, why didn't they take Sirhan Sirhan out? Why has he been allowed to live and, and talk publicly? You know, it, that's an interesting question, too. I mean, I think the point... Uh, the death penalty would have served that. I think that was a way to get it done. But then, uh, I think it was, actually, Teddy Kennedy came forward and said that he wanted uh, to make sure that Sirhan lived. He courageously wrote a letter to the California uh, Department of Justice, and he said that this man does not deserve to be executed. We need to make sure there's no execution. And to his credit, I think he was part of the effort to keep the man alive, Senator Kennedy. Do you think that we'll ever see uh, another trial for Sirhan Sirhan? Well, William Pepper tried, and he uh, he was denied that back in 2011. He felt that he d- he deserved another trial based on the fact he wasn't culpable for the assassination. He could remember what happened, so he did try, but they, they were denied that back in 2011. I don't think we're ever going to have a chance to get another trial, no. Now, one thing we could see happen, this is possible, might remember with uh, Dr. King's assassination, Prentice yeah. Scott King, to her credit, got together with Dr. William Pepper, actually, was yes. him. They had a mock trial. A civil trial. With, yeah, right. with, uh, you know, James Earl Ray. And it didn't have any legal uh, bearing, but it did have real testimony with real witnesses that got some of the truth out. That's a possibility if there was the effort to do that. That would be a, a good way to go have a mock trial. Yeah, it's interesting that that, that, that was Pepper's other high-profile uh, client, and that was James Earl Ray. And uh, that civil trial in, in Memphis, I believe it was in the late 90s, 99, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the uh, the plaintiffs, the Coretta Scott King and the King family, versus, uh, I believe they mentioned uh, or they named a possible conspirator, Lloyd Jowers, and mm-hmm. other unnamed conspirators. And the, uh, the jury returned... Within a couple of hours, with a, uh, a guilty verdict, and the King family was awarded one dollar, which is all they asked for. But right. no media coverage of that trial whatsoever. I know it was just ridiculous, shameful, really. Yes, even even, uh, even just based on a sort of you know curiosity, you would think that there would have been some mainstream media coverage, but virtually nothing at all. Uh, we'll come back and uh, continue to discuss. Uh, the assassination of Bobby Kennedy near the the 47th anniversary of uh, his assassination. John Kerner, why the CIA killed JFK and Malcolm X. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with John Kerner, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. Uh, we, we, we talked about uh, one of the possible motives that the agency wanted Bobby Kennedy dead, and that is, uh, were he elected president, um, that, that he would have uh, reopened the JFK assassination uh, investigation. Uh, but there's another angle here, and, and this is really the subject of your, your book, Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X. The secret drug trade in Laos. Let's explore that connection a little bit more. Why did what, what did the the drug trade uh, in Laos have to do with Bobby Kennedy? Well, at that point in time, the agency was making a, just a huge killing off the drug trade. They were making so much money off of it. They were basically using agents to spread drugs into the Southeast Asia and into the United States as well. And Devin Morales and Ted Shackley and a number of other men were on the ground running this operation, growing and selling drugs. And they, they also were selling a lot of the drugs to American GIs in Vietnam. Heroin was um, typically used by many GIs as a, as a stress relief for all the combat they, they were kind of going through. So they were easy targets for buying heroin. And Bobby Kennedy was making it very clear that if he became president, all this was going to come to an end. Drug trade is going to stop. War in Vietnam is going to come to an end. And we mentioned before, too, that also one of his part of his agenda was to open up a new investigation to his brother's assassination. So he becomes a big threat because of that. And I think that's kind of where it ties in. E. Howard Hunt, we can mention him, too. E. Howard Hunt, you might know, on his deathbed, he confesses that he was involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. He tells this to his son, St. John. And he names a number of different men from the agency that were involved in JFK's assassination, one of whom was this guy, as I mentioned, David Morales. And Morales, as I mentioned before, is our connection between the drug trade, RFK, and JFK. He comes right from Hunt's testimony on his deathbed. Where is Morales today? Is he still alive? No, he died in the 70s, mysteriously. Um... A lot, of, a lot of these uh, men die very strange deaths. Uh, he was about to be called before the House Committee on Assassinations to testify, but he died before he could he could get to the to do, get any testimony in there. There is documents sealed from the National Archives, about 61 or so, that relate to him. That we're never going to see the light of day. But I think that's the key guy here. We can keep focusing on. The effort to uh, to release a lot of the documents that pertain to JFK's assassination, Martin Luther King's assassination, a lot of this, the impetus for, for that, that bill that was passed to release these documents, I believe came in the uh, the wake of Oliver Stone's JFK movie. Um, what documents uh, came out of that a bill relating to Bobby's assassination that, that uh, really you think were the most revelatory? Well, I think we should focus on more so the ones that haven't been released. I mean, we have, just going back to, you know, what E. Howard Hunt had said, if you look at the ones just from the, the, the men he talked about, all the key players in the JFK assassination that he named, there are, just for example, there's 123 pages of files uh, for William K. Harvey, who... Hunt says was the key man who organized the assassination. And I mentioned there's about 61 pages that relate to 
Uh, Morales, there is 332 for Hunt. Uh, there are 606 for David Lee at David Atley Phillips. So there's so much more that we can find out. These men that link to JFK's assassination and also RFK's assassination. We need to find these out, and the president should release them. What's to hide? Those documents are sealed. They 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 cannot be. They will not be released. Well. There has been efforts to get them out of the National Archives, but back in 2013, um, the president released 1,100 pages of documents related to, to the assassination, but there are still about 175 batches that are still unreleased by the government, so we still have so much more to find out. I guess if you file an FOIA request, you know, what's to lose if it gets released, it'll probably be redacted anyway. Well, have you given any thought to that, or have you already started that FOIA request? I think that should be the next step for me. I really should try to see what we can find out what's in these documents. And then, at that point, what, what will be found out would be a nice good next step for, you know, maybe another book. Um, how easy or difficult would it be for you to uh, to contact uh, or to speak with, uh, get, get an interview to, with Sirhan Sirhan? I would imagine it would be very difficult for me to get any access to him. Would you, Doc, be, able, would you be able to go through uh, William Pepper? I would love to talk to him. That would be great. I mean, oh. that w- I have so many questions for him. I mean, it would be it'd be a revealing interview. I'd like to talk to him about you know what happened that night, what he remembers. All right, listen, we'll take a time out. We'll come back, and maybe sure. we'll find out uh, what would your top three questions to Sirhan Sirhan be. John Kerner is with us, the author of Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. John Kerner is with us as we uh, commemorate the 47th anniversary of the assassination of Senator Robert Kennedy. Uh, before we get to back to Sirhan Sirhan, what kind of president do you think Kennedy would have made? I, I, I've argued with people that he may have even been better than Jack Kennedy. Oh, yeah, I think it's, it's so much so much hope died with him that night. If we can just say, for example, that Dr. King would have lived and RFK would have lived, Dr. King was going to start a poor people's campaign in 1968, and Robert Kennedy was focused on the working class, their needs, their hopes, their dreams. And he became president. I mean, think of the 1970s, 80s. Income inequality is such a big issue today. The rich own the top 1% of the wealth in the world, and that never happens if these two men are allowed to live. So he goes into the presidency in 69, the 70s begin with this hope and the dreams of the working class being achieved, and if he also gets to dismantle the, the agency, he would hold trials for treason, executions for treason. The truth comes out about the assassination of President Kennedy. There's just a whole new hope for the country. There's more respect for our nation as a nation of truth and honor, a nation that values its working class. So it, it so much dies with him that day. And, of course, the Vietnam, Vietnam War continues. More deaths from there, more drug addiction. All that stuff just continues. So it just it's just such a bitter, this horrible day for the country when he's assassinated. Uh, do you think another concern was that um, had Bobby lived uh, and served perhaps two terms, all of a sudden that takes him up to 1976, and then waiting in the wings is Ted Kennedy. You could right. have had 
a uh, uh, imagine if if John F. Kennedy had not been assassinated and had right. served two terms, and then Bobby's in line, and then Ted's in line. Talk about a political dynasty. Yeah, and I mean, all these men, their focus is on the working class, on the middle class, to 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 take care of their needs, their interests, their their ideas. Uh, they're men of vision and dreams, men of peace. And the whole orientation of our foreign policy is towards not war, but peace and equality and, and, and goodness. Is there a war on terrorism today against our country, the United States? Probably not. I mean, the, the things we challenge our country today with, with terrorism, militarization of our nation, inequality, these things all exist because those men were killed. And it, it just, the whole nation shifts on those days. All right, uh, back to Sirhan Sirhan, uh, languishing in prison still. And um, if you could have access to Sirhan Sirhan, uh, either directly or, let's say, through his attorney, William Francis Pepper, uh, what would your top three questions be? I think I would first ask him, like you were saying before, was he a JFK, I shouldn't say, sorry, RFK supporter? Did he like the Kennedys? Was he... Was he in favor of him being elected president? Because if you can establish that, then just have, there's no motive. And then if you go on from there, I want to know what he remembers from that night. What is he able to remember that he did that night? Because if he, he has a recollection of the evening, then we talk about you know responsibility for the assassination. And then third, I just want to know what, what he kind of feels about the future of his life, what he plans to do the rest of his life. He's got some years left. What, what does he have in mind for what he's going to do with the rest of his life? Well, they're going to be sent, they're going to be spent behind bars. Uh, I mean, does he want to write a book? Does he want to right. have more, does he have more efforts for a new trial? Is there, is there more th- things he can tell us? Is that kind of uh, thing I want to get out of him too? Yeah, uh, how uh, an individual like that is able to keep uh, to keep it together, yeah. Uh, to me, is remarkable. Uh, you know, no hope for release, really. I don't believe, uh, and yet uh, he just he keeps going and and seems to be, you know, uh, fairly positive in his outlook in life. He seems to be a halfway decent kind of a guy. I mean, he seems like a, a well-adjusted human being. Uh, he doesn't seem like he's you know evil or or vindictive or ruthless. He seems like a really halfway. Uh, decent, sane, intelligent kind of a person. Indeed, indeed. What are? Let's go back to some of the records uh, that have not been released, that have been sealed regarding the um, uh, assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Uh, and, and you mentioned some of the revelations of um, E. Howard Hunt on his deathbed and naming some of the conspirators. Uh, what are some of the other documents uh, that you'd like to get your hands on? Or what is left for you to uncover? What, what are the, what's the smoking gun document you'd like to see? The main thing I want to get my hands on are those 61 pages that are related to David Morales that are still in the National Archives. And if we can get those released without being redacted, that's the key thing, then we're going to find out more what, about what he knew about both of these assassinations. And back in 1976, the House Committee on Assassinations, they tried to get their hands on these documents. But the agency said, well, you know what, there's no time to, to go through them and collate them. So we don't have the resources to, to get through them and, and release them to the, to the Congress. So they were denied access back in 76 to national, uh, the U.S. Congress. So we're talking about arrogance here from the agency to, to get to the truth here. So we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll keep trying. 
Uh, if the, uh, the the connection to the drug trade in Southeast Asia in Laos was uh, pivotal uh, in terms of a motive for the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, uh, explain to me the importance of the drug trade to the CIA operation. Well, the main thing is it's all about money. If you follow the money here, you can see how if the war comes to an end, then they no longer can sell the heroin to the men in Vietnam. And we're talking about half a million potential customers there in Vietnam that they're selling these drugs to. And about 60,000 men kill themselves from drug addictions when they come back home to our country, the United States. So we're talking about an agency that is just ruthless in terms of its operations. They even used the coffins of the soldiers to bring this drug into the U.S. They would stuff the coffins with heroin and then ship this to our country. I, I remember reading that in your in, in your book, uh, yeah, why the CIA killed JFK and Malcolm X. That to me is uh, just almost unfathomable to to, to to believe. How do we know this? Uh, I mean, is do you know for certainty that that occurred, and how do we know? In fact, I, after I was talking about this on coast to coast, I had two different emails that I got from veterans that said they were in Air America. And they themselves saw this happen, and they were admitting this to me years later, that they are part of this, and they were just ashamed of it, that they took part in this, and that they, they witnessed all this that took place on the ground back in the late 60s and 70s. And a lot of this stuff, you know, it's hard to talk about. Their own government did this. But, again, it's all about the profit motive. They are making so much money off of this drug trade year after year that these men were in the way of it. And, in fact, in RFK's announcement speech for the presidency, he made a point to say that one thing he learned about when he was in JFK's administration was the importance of limiting military power. And one particular point he mentioned is the negotiations for peace settlements in Laos. He pointed out in his speech in March of 68. So he made a point back when he even became a candidate for the presidency that this is going to be a part of his campaign pushing peace in Laos and in Vietnam. Uh, his, uh, Kennedy's opponent um, would, would have been Richard Nixon. Right. Uh, it's, uh, it's always interesting uh, to note that, uh, you know, when Nixon was asked about where he was on November 22nd, he was apparently the only person on the planet who didn't recall. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, he's not, he, the man is dead, and, and I, I, you know, uh, not here to defend himself, obviously. But right. was Nixon at all involved in Bobby's demise? Well, interesting question. Uh, I think that Richard Nixon made it very clear to a number of key people in the military and in the CIA that he became president, that he would expand the war in Vietnam. In fact, Lyndon Johnson knew about this. He called it treason, in fact. Nixon was making it clear to the peace negotiators in, in Vietnam, people in Vietnam, you know, basically don't push for peace. Let the war continue. He wanted, if he became president, to continue the war. And this was great to those in the military, and they wanted to keep the war going. And Johnson knew about this. He called it treason. And, uh, yeah, Nixon was casting his lot before he even became president. With the military. Well, even conservative commentator George F. Will has come out and, and, and said it's it's 100% certain Richard Nixon uh, committed treason. And, and this was 
this, the, what people were complaining about the, uh, the Congress in the United States sending these letters to Iran saying, uh, you know, your nuclear agreements with the president mean nothing. Uh, same sort of deal, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, with Nixon, uh, Bobby Kennedy would have defeated Nixon in 68. He would have, Humphrey almost beat him anyway. Humphrey got very close to defeating Nixon, and Humphrey wasn't even that popular. RFK would have, would have defeated Nixon, uh, I think, pretty easily. So Nixon was, I think, fairly certain that he was going to lose a second time to another Kennedy, and that wasn't sitting too well with him. Uh, the Phoenix program um, right. was ostensibly, uh, you know, designed to to neutralize um, the Viet Cong. But what was really going on with Project Phoenix, and what is the connection between uh, or the Phoenix program, the Phoenix program, and Air America? Phoenix program is set up by the agency, the CIA, to do a number of things. Uh, one thing is that they want to give a good body count to Lyndon Johnson and Nixon that the war is being won. What they're really killing is people that are against them, opponents of the drug trade, people who could, um, you know, anyone that would be in their way that might cause trouble for them. It's their own private assassination program, really, to liquidate anyone that is opposed to them and to keep the war going as long as possible. And it serves a number of different purposes, one of which is to provide assassins for different purposes. In fact, um, a number of different people have said that perhaps the assassins from Dr. King's assassination came from the Operation Phoenix program as well. That was in Dr. Pepper's book, or a different, different book, I might have read that in. But anyway, the, the program itself has different tentacles that go in many, many directions. All right. Um, listen, we are out of time, but I want to uh, thank you for spending some time with us and commemorating the 47th anniversary of the assassination of uh, Robert F. Kennedy and um, look forward to speaking to, to you again. We've got the uh, the anniversary of JFK Jr.'s assassination coming up as well, so we'll speak again for sure. Thank you so much, Richard, for a great conversation. John Kerner, why the CIA killed JFK and Malcolm X. All right, that's it. We are done. My thanks to Tim Spreen, Albert Vinzel, Eric Ames, and all of you for listening. Back next week with a brand new program. Hope you'll be along for that one. It'll be good. Uh, Joel Skousen will be here in the first hour to talk about Jade Helm 15, which of course is coming to the American Southwest, this uh, military uh, exercise that has a lot of people very worried. We'll find out what's really going on there. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light and what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.